everybody. Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. On this week's episode... We examine the power of social media influencer storefronts. Next, we'll tell you how many Americans believe in ghosts. Ooh. <laughs> and we'll explore how Americans are doubling down on fintech. All that coming up next on America This Week. Hey, Libby, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? You don't, you don't sound so great. <laughs> well, there was just a bunch of helicopters circling my building and cutting off my Wi-Fi. And then I just wish there was an app for that. You know, like New York City, why is there a helicopter chasing my building? What's going on with my morning <laughs> app? <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, hey, listen, why don't you tell uh, listeners a little bit about our show real quick? Yeah, so the, the point of the podcast is really to bring American society into the boardroom, highlighting the emerging needs and desires of consumers bubbling to the top so that business leaders and just curious people are better prepared to navigate towards the future figure out what's going on. Jeez, Libby, there's a lot going on. And then let's start with the weekly heat. We always start our podcast with the three most important numbers of the week. Some some things that sort of struck our, our fancy. And Libby, this week, we're going to pull three numbers from our brand new Stress in America survey with the American Psychological Association. We'll put the full report in the show notes. But there are Three pretty interesting numbers that perhaps not surprising to you are focused on money and inflation and how much that is a stress right now to, to Americans. So the first number is 83. Inflation is a source of stress for 83% of US adults right now. 57 is our second number because of those adults who said that they had that stress, 57% said that having enough money to pay for things in the present, like rent or mortgage, is their main source of financial stress. So clearly this is really compounding on Americans. And then the last number, Libby, is 43, who report feeling that saving enough money for things in the future is their main source of stress. So Libby, when you look at those numbers, what do you really see here? Yeah, I mean, it's just really illuminating how inflation affects our nation's decision making. You know, when you look at the data, we also see that a majority of Americans, and this is in truer if you're Hispanic or you're Black, you have to make different choices due to the lack of money and these inflationary effects of everyday financial decision making. So there's a lot of trade-offs that people have to make. So for example, Americans are cutting back on impulse shopping at retails and malls we've seen in our data. Some of them are planning ahead for holiday shopping. Others are making sure that they have vacations. But really from a marketer and you know business leader point of view, it's like, where do you fall in that trade-off spectrum? And how, where are you when people are making these financial decisions and trade-offs because inflation is a thing that everyone has to deal with and it impacts you in different ways. That's really interesting. I mean, it's almost like you have to be constantly sort of pulsing your customers, right? Because there seems to be this scenario now where Americans are forced quite rapidly to be making trade-offs that might affect your product or service. Yeah, I think you have to constantly be pulsing and you have to also understand who is your audience and really get more specific and targeted with what you'd want to be delivering to them, you know? Because then maybe there's an opportunity for some at some point and, and others not so much, but you can curtail or you could you could adjust your product or service to the needs of, of people as inflation impacts them in different ways and make new product market fits. 
Hey, well, let's jump into the first of our three stories. We're going to start and talk about inside the influencer storefronts and how they're driving sales for brands. And this is a brand new Harris Poll study that we just conducted this week with AdAge. And I, I guess, Libby, why don't you give us a 101 on what's an influencer storefront and how does it work? Sure. So basically, an influencer storefront is the 101 on affiliate marketing, which means that affiliate marketing just means if you recommend a product and someone then buys it, you get a cut of that product. And so influencers and creators are leveraging platforms like Amazon. And there's this other app called LTK, which is a creator oriented shopping app that allows customized storefronts for these influencers. So they can take all their product recommendations from dozens of different brands and then tell them and promote them to their audience base. So when their followers visit those storefronts and purchase clothing or skincare or jewelry design or whatever it is, they get a cut of that because they were ultimately the editor and curator of that that storefront. And Libby, they don't need to just be on Amazon, right? They could be doing this off TikTok or Instagram. Yeah, so it's it's actually that they are creating all this content on a TikTok or on Instagram and it leads to an Amazon usually storefront or an LTK storefront. Previous, you know, five years ago, Instagram influencers were already giving these kinds of recommendations, but they weren't always getting the affiliate part of the the price back. So now they're they're able, able to aggregate everything, their entire lifestyle of curated choices. So they're much more like kind of a magazine storefront at this point. Got it. Well, it really seems to be working because in our data, we found that nearly half of American consumers actually consider input from influencers when they're purchasing a product or service. But Libby, this is especially true of Gen Z inside the audience here that we that we measured, which was 18 to 25 year olds. So uh, listen to a couple of these numbers. Three quarters or 75% of Gen Z say that recommendations from influencers or creators actually impact their decision to make a purchase. And that's nearly double that of the general population. And also four out of 10 Gen Zs have made purchases directly through an influencer storefront like you're talking about on these sites like Amazon and LTK. And then lastly, nearly three quarters, 73% of Gen Z also reported looking to TikTok creators for product input with Instagram and YouTube influences also. I mean, Libby, does this surprise you? No, I mean, this is this is definitely the new way people are shopping. John, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this hashtag. There's a hashtag that's very popular on TikTok called TikTok made me buy it. <laughs> and it has over 25 billion views on TikTok. So this relationship between fan and creator and, and how people purchase is, is really there. Also, what's really interesting is we all know that Amazon has a prime day and that's affected everything from moving up kind of holiday shopping. But last week, they also did prime early access sale, which was like added holiday shopping slant. So during the sales 20, 48 hour span, creators flooded TikTok and other social media platforms promoting specific products with major discounts on their, their stores. And TikTok alone, the hashtag prime early access sale was viewed over 24 million times in just wow. two days. So again, like really thinking about the power of these micro creators and influencers to elevate these sales and these products is huge. Can I ask a question about this, Libby? Because mm -hmm. if I took this cynical point of view, perhaps a, a little bit of an older 
person's point of view, if you will. When you look at these influencers and creators, I mean, what is the difference between them and salespeople? I mean, as you really look at this, I mean, clearly there's authenticity working here, but, but what is the authentic angle? Why are they resonating so powerfully with Gen Z? Well, I think it's, I look at what they're doing more as why we used to turn to fashion magazines or beauty magazines mm. or consumer review. And so mm. when I when you think about it from that angle, we always need a point of curation and trust in our lives. There's and especially now, there's just too many sure. products, too much noise. And so what they're doing is and what they do really well and they do it really well because it's also on video is that they're telling you this is why I authentically like this product. In most cases, ideally it's authentic, but I think if it's not authentic, you can suss it out pretty quick and see that right through the sales pitch of that. But they're giving you an understanding of what the what the gem is under the treasure trove of a million things you could be doing or buying. And they're trying to help you focus your attention. I know people have changed their skincare routines based on what they've found here. They've I was talking to a woman who is not in the TikTok generation at all the other day at a conference, and she said that she turned to TikTok to find product recommendations on drugstore skincare brands because they had really good versions on TikTok. You can really scratch your own niche and itch on TikTok as well, which I think is you know, it's not like the way we used to turn to Vogue or Allure. It's like, hey, what's your specific desire itch around something? And then you can find it. So what's the best product to buy at Costco? What's the best, you know, beauty product at CVS? What's the best product you could buy at Bloomingdale's? Like all of these things are answered and addressed in a very relevant, incredible way on TikTok. Fascinating. And it seems like for Gen Z that users have used the app, right, to, to learn about fashion, beauty, and skincare. Yeah. So we, we're seeing from our own data that not only do Gen Z turn to TikTok more than Google to learn about cultural and social events, turning to TikTok for fashion, beauty, and skincare at almost half of Gen Z's local hmm. businesses at 36% and experiences at 35%. So I think there's huge implications here. I mean, Google's even talking about it. They're mentioning it. And they've actually are changing their own shopping experience, that Google Shopping tab, to become more like TikTok, to become more immersive, video heavy, and to really get people into the experience itself versus kind of the catalog view that has traditionally been part of Google's search shopping experience. Got it. So Libby, what should brands know when partnering with influencers? I mean, I think if you look at overall, if, if you kind of believe in, in the hypothesis that influencers and creators are the new editors and curators, and it's really where the trust is, you have to, as a brand, you have to start thinking about them as editors and creators. So not that you're giving them an assignment or that you're telling them this is how I want my brand represented and you're just a sales channel, but really more, here's the brief. This is what we're trying to convey. Here's tools we have in our resources and let's do something as a collaborative. Let's do something together. But really, it's it's about building micro armies of these creators and influencers to then go authentically represent your message. So your message and your brand has to be pretty strong so that it can be translated over telephone in a very clear and on-brand way. I think the, the more convoluted it is, the more challenging it becomes as these micro influencers become your main source of influence on, online. 
Mm. And it seems like just with brands and companies, you know, really stressing their values, you, you need to find influencers that are going to align with strong values as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's super interesting. So it feels like um, for Gen Z influencers or creator recommendations, they're sort of the new product reviews. They're the new editors. They're the reason you pay attention. I love that scratch that niche. That's a good one. we got to yeah. work on that one a little bit. Let's get into, we always have a, a number in our pod called the palate cleanser, which is sort of the light refreshing number of the week. What have you got for us? Yes. Given the season we're in, can you finish this sentence? So, who are you going to call? <laughs> oh, I saw what you did there. Uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's really corny. I think my, I'm, I'm blushing how corny it is. But what we did, we decided to look into how many younger Americans or just Americans in general, believe in ghosts. And John, I think you might be uh -huh. kind of surprised. So six in 10 Gen Z and millennials believe in ghosts. Only uh, around half Gen X, 49% believe in ghosts. And then that drops to a quarter of boomers. So you see a real uptake in Gen Z and millennials. Six in 10 Gen Z mm -hmm. millennials believe in ghosts? Yeah, they believe in ghosts. Okay. All right. Paranormal is real. They also, we looked into the full moon effect. So over half of Gen Z and millennials believe that behavioral impact of the full moon is real. And there's witches and uh, the supernatural elements as well they believe in. So there's just this like other thing that is always kind of present in the minds of, of Gen Z and millennials, whether it's ghosts or the full moon or kind of supernatural being out there. And then, you know, not even besides outside of Harris, there's two separate surveys, one by a home security company, another by a real estate company that found that nearly half of homeowners believe that they are living in a haunted house. So I don't know, we're, we're starting to get this tipping point where, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's becoming a common belief that there's ghosts, that they're supernatural, and that we might be living in haunted houses. I mean, John, would you buy a haunted house? <laughs> I'm not so sure, but... You know, Libby, uh, Jack Cooney, who's our executive producer and also just a, a great analyst at the Harris Poll, uh, I'm going to ask her to uh, correlate this data with cannabis and CBD use. I want to see how those numbers line uh, up. I mean, I don't know. You know, what's interesting is we, Jack actually looked into the house that inspired um, Conjuring, which is like a, a scary movie. And that house in Rhode Island, in, in Burryville, Rhode Island, sold for $1.5 over asking price. Oh my gosh. And we recently looked into it and the new owner said it's too powerful to live in because it's got so much supernatural elements going on and that instead of living in there, he is going to resume the haunted tours, which is, you know, if you're a little skeptical about it, you're just like, wow. oh, it's just a revenue generating house versus actually supernatural house. But if you want to go visit, you can go visit. I wonder if Airbnb is doing Halloween themed uh, haunted house uh, rentals. That would be a good idea. Yeah, I bet they are. And I, I would not be one to partake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, hey, let's get into our second or third story, uh, focusing on uh, on fintech. And Libby, you want to kind of set us up and take us through? Yeah, it's a basically about how Americans are doubling down on fintech. And every year with Plaid, we release this report called The Fintech Effect, which is monitoring and assessing the adoption of fintech. And if you don't know, mm -hmm. fintech means financial technology. And so these insights are going to be 
relevant for our financial clients who are listening, but really for the everyday person, just to put fintech in perspective, fintech has been a highly disruptive way banks think about you and your money and the way you use apps instead of traditional banking channels. It's giving and providing more opportunities to create new brands and solving financial headaches. So when you think of fintech, think of Robinhood, Credit Karma, Coinbase, Cash App, Venmo. These are all fintech tools that help people access money and manage their money and grow their wealth that were outside traditionally the financial industry, but also now traditional financial players are buying up fintech brands are making their own. So Hmm. there's just this enormous wave of fintech happening. And what's interesting from this year's fintech report is that one big number is just the massive amount of increase that we see year over year. So fintech adoption has maintained nearly 40% increase since 2020. So now you see eight in 10 Americans use fintech to manage their money. Two years ago in 2020, that was only 58%. So just a huge jump there. And what's interesting too is just the market in 2020 was around 110 billion. By 2030, so you know, eight years from now, it's going to be 700 billion. So just massive increase here. But the question is why, right? And so we see a majority of Americans at 61% saying fintech tools help them weather economic challenges. And we expect those to obviously be a big factor in 2023 as well. People are using payment apps, investment tools, and payroll advance tools. I thought what was really interesting, though, is that there's so many first-time investors using fintech apps. So more than half have started to invest the first time using fintech of Americans. And that's a big deal because only 58% of Americans are even invested in the stock market. So the more people that are part of investing and being part of that on-ramp to the stock market, the more chances we have for sustainable wealth portfolios, right? The other interesting... Mm-hmm. Oh, can I ask you a quick question on that? Sure. Maybe. So mm-hmm. as, as you think about that, with that on-wrap, what is really driving fintech, fintech adoption? Is it just the economic volatility right now, or is it the fact that it's so much easier to use, it's frictionless, or are there any sort of deeper human values sort of underneath what's driving its, its Yeah, I, I think a big one is one thing that the fintech industry inherently did, like when you think about brands like Robinhood or you think about Venmo or Square, any of these things, they part of it was they made everything more seamless. They took out the jargon. Jargon was always a big deal mm-hmm. in the financial industry. And then they made it more intuitive to the places people already were. So for example, if you're already on your phone all the time, you know, having an app like Robinhood and then taking away all the fees. I mean, I know there's been a lot of controversy about the gamification of Robinhood. But if you just scroll back and you think about what Robinhood was able to do in the beginning, where they were taking away fees and they were ramping people up, it really provided an an on-ramp and access point for a lot of people who didn't feel that that was a system that included them or that they could learn about. In fact, way before the pandemic, when we were in research about this, a lot of people started saying, oh, well, I would I would put a little play money in there. So I would just learn how to invest. And so this idea of learning by doing, I think, is what fintech really enables. And that the financial industry traditionally 
made people feel like I can only participate if I already am wealthy. Right. And so right. there's just a there's huge on ramps um, of accessibility in in fintech. So when you talk about that accessibility, has it opened up sort of adoption among different audiences, different newer types of investors? Yeah, I mean, what you do see is that over 7 in 10 Gen Z and millennials say that economic challenges made them more reliant on on digital finance. And so Mm. when you think about that, that's like budgeting, payment, payday advance versus, you know, they're, they're much higher than the Gen X and Boomer numbers. But also people of color who felt disproportionately underserved by traditional financial systems, Uh they also use it more than white Americans. Hispanic and black Americans are in the 92, 88% versus white Americans at 74%. So you see some real jumps there. And so obviously those are things like feeling seen, heard, recognized, but also just education as part of it as well. That's super interesting. I mean, I, you know, it kind of harkens back to some of the data that, that we have shared on the pod previously around crypto, right? You know, the ability to route around sort of the systemic structural barriers to toward investing. This seems to be not only frictionless because it's sort of, you know, mimicking behavior that you already do on your apps and your phone, but it's also really sort of creating a, a, a more sort of egalitarian way to be an investor. Yeah, and one last point on the data that I found really interesting of of this year's report was that 6 in 10 fintech users want to be able to connect their crypto accounts to all their other traditional financial accounts so they can track their overall finances. I don't think there's an app that currently does that, and I think that's a really interesting aspect and element because, of course, it's part of your overall portfolio, right? And so... You constantly see people who are used to and accustomed to fintech. So again, a lot of younger Americans keep pushing the boundaries and saying, well, my financial health is all of these things. Why don't they all connect and work together? So I think that's really just a strong signal that more of these financial headaches will continue to be solved for pushed and molded by the by the fintech industry. Super interesting. Well, Libby, we are going to take a trip, right? Next week, you and I are going to be down speaking at the Forbes CMO conference. Yeah, in Miami. So that will be, we're speaking about not what you think, which is kind of a, everything you thought about a certain topic. We're kind of taking a different take on it. <laughs> That'll be a lot of fun. There's some, going to be some great folks down there. We'll uh, pull together some insights uh, for listeners when we get back together next week. Uh, any other thoughts on this data before we wrap it up? No, I think I think that's really it. I think um, I think fintech probably will be even bigger as we move forward because economic inequality is growing in the U.S. and so there's going to be more opportunities for pain points and barriers to be solved. So it's just a, it's a huge wave that we're going to continue watching at, at the Harris Bowl. You know, it's really instructive, right, to other businesses to just think about the incredible growth and in usage in this sector and how do you transfer that into your industry? Because, I mean, the traditional barriers that were up there, you know, whether you want to call it directly discrimination or not, but, you know, clearly there was a lot of barriers that were built against sort of human behavior and it feels like fintech starting to really break down a bunch of those things and obviously making it far more apple-like in terms of its simplicity because i think investing sort of 
terrifies a few, a few people in this country. So it's pretty interesting. Great. Well, hey, uh, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining. Libby and I wanted to remind you, if you've got a burning question you might have, or if you've been thinking of, gosh, I would love to field my own poll, why don't you send us an idea to atw at harrispoll.com and like the idea we might throw it up on the air and give you some uh, shout out for that so we really appreciate our listeners also we'd love for you to uh, leave us a review if you get a chance it helps more listeners find the show and we also have a newsletter called america this week on linkedin which you can find uh, through libby rodney or me john gersma libby thanks so much as always and have a great weekend you too thanks john